The House and Senate will both return Monday and stay in session through the end of the week. Last week in the House, the House came back to work on Wednesday, December 2, and passed a bill under suspension of the rules and passed three other bills by voice vote under suspension. On Thursday, the House passed 20 bills by voice vote under suspension of the rules. Then the House passed the rule to govern floor consideration of H.R. 3884, the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act of 2019, also known as the Moore Act of 2019. On Friday, the House took up and passed H.R. 3884, the Moore Act, by a vote of 228 to 164, and then they were done. This week in the House, they'll reconvene tomorrow with first votes expected as early as 2 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to consider seven bills under suspension. On Tuesday, the House is expected to consider the conference report to accompany H.R. 6395, the National Defense Authorization Act. The House is also scheduled to consider 11 bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, the House is scheduled to consider 16 bills under suspension of the rules. In addition, the House will still have to pass some kind of government funding bill, either an omnibus or a continuing resolution, before government funding runs out at midnight Friday night. Once they finish that, they'll be done for the year and will not be back until the 117th Congress is sworn in in January. Last week in the Senate, the Senate came back to work on Monday, November 30th, and moved to invoke cloture on the nomination of Taylor B. McNeil to be U.S. District Judge for the Southern District of Mississippi. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to confirm him to that position. Then the Senate voted, voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of J. Philip Calabrese to be U.S. District Judge for the Northern District of Ohio. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Kyle Hauptman to be a member of the National Credit Union Administration Board. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to confirm him to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Catherine C. Davis to be a judge of the U.S. Court of Federal Claims. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Christopher Waller to be a member of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. Then the Senate voted to pass S-578, a bill to amend Title II of the Social Security Act to eliminate the five-month waiting period for disability insurance benefits under that title for individuals with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. On Thursday, the Senate voted to confirm Christopher Waller to be a member of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Liam P. Hardy to be a judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. And then they were done. This week in the Senate, they'll come back into session tomorrow with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on a motion to invoke cloture on the nomination of Stephen Sidney Schwartz to be a judge of the United States Court of Federal Claims. Based on the majority leader's cloture filings, I anticipate that in addition to the Schwartz nomination, the Senate will also consider the nomination of Nathan A. Symington to be a member of the Federal Communications Commission for a term of five years from July 1, 2019. Like the House, the Senate will also have to deal with a funding bill of some kind and also passage of the conference report to accompany the National Defense Authorization Act. Now to deferred action for childhood arrivals. On Friday, U.S. District Judge Nicholas Garofas, appointed by Bill Clinton, issued a ruling directing the Trump administration to fully restore the deferred action for childhood arrivals program. Further, the order requires that the Department of Homeland Security issue a public notice by Monday, that is tomorrow, declaring that the department is accepting new applicants to the program. That uh, would be the first time since 2017 that the government has accepted new applicants into the program. Further, approved applicants will receive two-year work permits instead of the one-year permits the Trump administration had proposed. According to The Hill, roughly a million illegal immigrants will now be able to apply for the program. That's on top of the roughly 640,000 illegal immigrants who are already enrolled in the program. 
The Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security can appeal the ruling, but as of this writing, have not indicated whether they plan to do so. Now to the Flynn pardon. On the day before Thanksgiving, President Trump granted General Michael Flynn a full pardon. It was an act of mercy and an act of justice. Now more on Barr and Durham. On Tuesday, Attorney General William Barr revealed that way back in October, while no one was looking, he had commissioned U.S. Attorney John Durham as special counsel as he continues his investigation into the origins of the FBI's crossfire hurricane inquiry. In a letter to Congress, Barr disclosed that he had secretly appointed Durham on October 19. Barr appointed Durham as special counsel to protect the investigation. With that status, Durham can only be removed, quote, for misconduct, dereliction of duty, incapacity, conflict of interest, or for other good cause, including violation of departmental policies, unquote. In other words, assuming Joe Biden becomes president, his appointee as attorney general would not be able to fire Durham to end his investigation. Not surprisingly, Democrats and the media went nuts. Now to spending. Funding for the federal government expires at midnight Friday, and negotiators still have not come to final agreement on the funding levels necessary to write a bill that can pass both House and Senate. Meanwhile, pressure for Congress to enact another coronavirus relief bill continues to rise. One week ago, it looked like we were more likely to end up with an omnibus spending bill to carry government funding all the way through the end of the fiscal year on September 30 with no coronavirus relief bill. Today, it looks like the opposite is more likely to happen. It's looking more and more like we'll get some kind of coronavirus relief bill tacked on to a short-term continuing resolution with a duration of just a week or so, so negotiators can finish up their discussions on a full omnibus package. As of this writing, nothing has been decided, but given that it takes the Appropriations Committee staff a couple of days to turn agreed-upon text into the legislative language necessary to actually pass a bill, I'd bet that if we don't hear by Tuesday at the latest that they've come to agreement on funding levels for an omnibus bill, the House and Senate will be voting by Thursday on a short-term CR. More on election results. We're down to two still contested races for the U.S. House of Representatives, and there's a possibility that things are going to get really ugly. First, an easy update on the runoff in Louisiana. In Louisiana's 5th Congressional District, incumbent Republican Ralph Abraham, who ran last year for the Republican nomination for governor of the state and lost, announced in February that he would not run for re-election to the seat he had held since first being elected in 2014. That district is reliably Republican, and not surprisingly, the two candidates who made it into a runoff that was held yesterday were both Republicans. Luke Letlow won, and the seat stays in Republican hands. Now for the two that might get ugly. First up is Iowa's 2nd Congressional District, where Republican Marionette Miller-Meeks holds a six-vote lead over Democrat Rita Hart after all the counting and recounting has stopped. State election officials certified the election results on Monday. Two days later, Hart announced that she would appeal her race to the House of Representatives, which, as the Constitution says in Article 1, Section 5, quote, shall be the judge of the elections, returns, and qualifications of its own members, end quote. She is hoping the Democrat majority in the House will agree to count ballots that were not counted during the recount. She could have challenged the results in an Iowa court, but under state law, the challenge would have had to be completed by December 8, and her team didn't think that gave her enough time for a successful challenge. Instead, they're going to challenge Miller Meeks's victory in the House. And then there's New York's 22nd Congressional District, where Republican Claudia Tenney holds a 12-vote lead over incumbent Democrat Anthony Brindisi as the two sides prepare for a court showdown tomorrow. 
A judge will decide what to do about hundreds of ballots that are contested by both sides. Given what's going on with the Iowa seat, I would not be at all surprised to see Brindisi do the same thing if the court confirms Tenney as the victor. Those of you old enough to have been active during the Reagan presidency may remember the last time the U.S. decided a similarly contested election. It was, it was early 1985, and the contest was for the seat representing Indiana's 8th Congressional District. In that contest, Republican challenger Rick McIntyre had defeated incumbent Democrat Frank McCloskey by just 34 votes, and Indiana state authorities had certified McIntyre as the winner. But McCloskey appealed to the full House. The House Administration Committee, controlled by Democrats, formed a three-person subcommittee with two Democrats and one Republican to consider the evidence. Not surprisingly, by the time they got done deciding which votes to count, McCloskey, the Democrat candidate, had four more votes than did McIntyre. And at that point, they stopped counting and declared McCloskey the victor. All the Republicans in the House protested by walking out on Moss. But McCloskey was seated and continued to serve in the House until he was defeated for re-election a decade later by John Hostetler. As a result of the, con- as a result of the controversy, Indiana's 8th District earned itself a nickname, the Bloody Eighth. If Republicans hold the seats in Iowa and New York, that would mean the 117th Congress would begin with 222 Democrats and 213 Republicans, a mere five-seat Democrat majority, making life exceedingly difficult for Speaker Pelosi, if she can get herself reelected. Now to Trump challenges. On Friday, scores of Republican members of the Pennsylvania legislature, including the Speaker of the State House, sent a letter to the Republican members of the state's congressional delegation asking them to challenge the state's electoral college votes during the January 6th joint session of Congress to count the votes. On the other side of the country, in Arizona, the Republican Speaker of the House took exactly the opposite tack. Speaker Rusty Bowers rejected the pressure campaign, calling Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani's demands, quote, breathtaking. Quote, I and my fellow legislators swore an oath to support the U.S. Constitution and the Constitution and laws of the state of Arizona, he said. It would violate that oath, the basic principles of Republican government and the rule of law, if we attempted to nullify the people's vote based on unsupported theories of fraud, end quote. In Georgia, the Trump legal team filed its lawsuit challenging the state certification of Joe Biden as the winner of the general election and asking that the court declare the election null and void. Now to electoral college challenges. Alabama Republican Congressman Mo Brooks believes the presidential race was stolen and aims to do something about it. Taking a page from the radical left's playbook, Brooks says he plans to challenge the casting of certain states' electoral votes for Joe Biden during the joint session of Congress on January 6th when the two bodies meet in the House chamber to read the results of the votes of the Electoral College. As of Friday, Brooks had yet to speak with a Republican member of the U.S. Senate. Without a senator to join him, his challenges will fail in the early stage. That is, no challenge gets past the starting gate unless three conditions are met. There's a member of the House, there's a member of the Senate, and they've both signed a written challenge to a particular state's electoral votes. Assume for the sake of argument that Brooks finds a senator willing to sign his or her name to a challenge of a particular state's electoral votes. When the teller calls out that state's votes, Brooks will seek recognition from the president of the Senate who will be presiding over the event. That's Vice President Mike Pence. Pence will recognize Brooks and Brooks will say he wants to challenge the vote that was just announced. Pence will ask him if he has a senator who agrees with his challenge and is the challenge in written form. 
If both of those conditions are met, then Pence will announce there's a challenge, and the members of the Senate will leave the House chamber and walk across the Capitol to their own chamber. For up to two hours, the two bodies will debate the challenge, and then they'll vote. Each member of the Senate will cast one vote, and each member of the House will cast one vote. And therein lies the problem. Brooks is not going to challenge the electoral votes cast by California or New York, and he's not going to challenge the electoral votes cast by Florida or Alabama. He's going to challenge the electoral votes cast by Arizona or Georgia or Michigan or Nevada or Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or some combination thereof. And that's going to force Republicans in each of those states to cast a tough vote. In order to vote to sustain Brooks's challenge, that would require them to cast a vote against their state's electorate. Or they could cast a vote to sustain the will of their state's electorate, as expressed in the November election, which would require them to cast a vote that would be perceived in at least some quarters as being a vote cast against the president. And for what purpose exactly? To elect Donald Trump to a second term? That's not going to happen, at least not this way. First, consider the Senate. On January 3rd, the 117th Congress will be sworn in. David Perdue's term ends on that day. The runoffs in Georgia take place two days later on January 5th, but it's quite possible we won't know for several days who won both seats. So on January 6th, when the Congress meets in the joint session, the seat Purdue currently holds will not have been filled, and there will only be 99 senators, and the Republican majority will be down to one vote at 49 to 48. Now, can you imagine Mitt Romney or Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski voting with their Republican colleagues on this vote? I cannot. Maybe they would, but I think it's highly, highly unlikely. So even in the body that you'd be counting on if you were writing up a campaign plan, that is the Republican-controlled Senate, there's actually no certainty at all that you'd get the pro-Trump vote you'd want and need in order for this strategy to succeed. So now let's look at the House. The House will have a Democrat majority. There is no way in the world any Democrat is going to cross party lines on January 6th to cast a vote with the Republican challenge of his or her state's electoral votes. So by definition, any and all challenges to electoral votes cast for Joe Biden are going to die in the House of Representatives on what at best from a pro-Trump point of view would be a straight party line vote. So Congressman Brooks's challenge or challenges to the electoral votes cast by any state or combination of states is very, very likely to end up not doing what he hopes it will, that is install Donald Trump in the White House for a second term, but will end up forcing Republicans to cast votes that can be used against them when next they run for re-election. And that's our Washington Report for this week.